in Scripture in the book of Romans, first from Romans chapter 5. Just a few verses from Romans 5, verses 1 through 5. This is after Paul has explained the gospel that Christ died for the sins of the ungodly, which is all of us, and has justified us. He writes in chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Then let's jump just a couple chapters forward to chapter 8, and We'll read that entire chapter, which will also be the focus, along with the the Lord's Day to which we're giving our attention. Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit." For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. 
For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is not seen, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But we hope for what we do not see. It, excuse me, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then? Shall we say to these things, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So far, the word of God. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from hymn 49, all stanzas. Every Lord's Day in the afternoon service, we turn to the Heidelberg Catechism as a summary of the Christian faith to, to look at the essentials and the basics of the Christian faith again. And this afternoon, we find ourselves in Lord's Day 20. That's on page 534 of your books of praise. There, the question is, what do you believe concerning the Holy Spirit? First, he is, together with the Father and the Son, true and eternal God. Second, he is also given to me to make me, by true faith, share in Christ and all his benefits, to comfort me and to remain with me forever. So far, the Heidelberg Catechism. 
brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, is this a church that is filled with the Holy Spirit? Is that how you, as a member of this church, would describe the church to which you belong? It's often been said that Reformed churches are very strong in doctrine and in knowledge, but are lacking in the Holy Spirit. Is there truth to that accusation? It's a very serious accusation. Paul says in our text, if anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. It's what the Lord Jesus himself said as well. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Is this a church, then, that is filled with the Holy Spirit? Or are we lacking? Well, one way that we're not going to answer that question is by assuming what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit and then applying that assumption to ourselves or to this church. And that's a, that's a very easy thing to do, to look over at that church over there and say, without ever seriously examining Scripture, they're not filled with the Holy Spirit. Or even to look over at a certain brother or sister and say, that person doesn't have the Holy Spirit because that person lacks certain things that I assume must be present for the Holy Spirit to be there. That's one way we're not going to answer this question. Instead, this afternoon, let's take an honest look at what Scripture says about who the Holy Spirit is, what the Holy Spirit does, and then on that basis we'll look at some genuine signs that indicate whether or not this is a church filled with the Holy Spirit. I chose to focus on Romans 8 to answer that question, because in Romans 8, Paul gives this amazing series of descriptions about life in and with the Spirit. But before we get to to Romans 8, let's look at where Paul begins this argument. He doesn't just randomly start talking about the Holy Spirit in Romans. He's working through an argument. And so for that, we go back to chapter 5 to understand the structure of Romans. In chapters 1 through 4, Paul describes the world, the, the fallen world in sin, and what it means to be justified by faith in Christ. He explains all of that in chapters 1 through 4. He shows that the whole world is under God's judgment, both Jews and Gentiles. He shows that our status before Our status of righteous before God is a a gift that comes through grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, not something that we earn by ourselves or something we inherit by virtue of our race or ethnicity. And and that's that's basic for most of us. We're Reformed Christians. We get that, and, and thank God that we do. Though, of course, we never need to stop being reminded of that. But then in chapter 5, Paul starts talking about what it means now to live as someone who is justified by faith. So Romans 1 through 4, he says, this is what it means to be justified by faith in Christ. Chapters 5 through 8, Paul then says, and this is what it's like to live as someone justified by faith in Christ. What is life like for people who have been justified and reconciled to God. And in the first verses of chapter 5, which we read together, verses 1 through 5, Paul summarizes the whole of the Christian life. So it's, it's everything else that he's going to say in chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8. It's summarized there in verses 1 through 5. Let's just turn back to those verses, Romans 5, 
1 through 5. Just a few verses, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, so that's all of Romans 1 through 4, since that's true, we have now peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's his summary of what it means to be, to live as a Christian. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, he says, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So, heads up, the Christian life involves and runs off of hope. Christian li- the Christian life requires that hope. Not only that, he says, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Another heads up. Don't get confused when he says we have peace. He doesn't mean the Christian life is easy. We rejoice even in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope, he says, does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And I think that last statement is a good summary of all of chapter 8. So that's where Paul is going then in Romans 5 through 8. And let's again, let's look at that last statement, the second part of verse 5. He says, hope does not put us to shame. Why? Why does your hope not put you to shame? Because, he says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So that's the role of the Holy Spirit in our life, to pour the love of God into our hearts. I'll, I'll explain in a moment what that, what that means. And his point here is the reason that you know that your hope is not a sham, the reason you know your hope will not leave you disappointed is because God's love has been poured into your hearts through the Spirit. In other words, we don't just hope that God will love us when we die. Or we don't hope that Christ will have mercy on us when he comes again. We don't just hope that. We know that God loves us because his love is already poured into our hearts because the Holy Spirit put it there. And you can see that this is where Paul is going if you look at how he finishes Romans chapter 8. So, so remember, his introduction here in verse 5 of chapter 5 is, God's love has been poured into our hearts. That's why we know our hope will not put us to shame. In Romans 8, he finishes that chapter saying, I'm sure that neither death nor life nor rulers nor angels nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what's the Holy Spirit's work? The Holy Spirit's work is to give us the assurance of God's love in Jesus Christ and a reciprocal love back to God in such a way that we know God's love, we experience God's love, and we have no doubt about God's love such that we can finish our lives with the same confidence that Paul finishes Romans 8, knowing that our hope will not disappoint us, that nothing will separate us from that love. So that's Paul's introduction then in, in Romans, 1, Romans 5, 
uh, 1 through 5. We know that that's where he's ultimately going to go. Fast forward then to Romans chapter 8. The question is, what is it that the Holy Spirit does to give us that assurance? In what way does he pour God's love into our hearts such that we know that our hope will not disappoint us? Well, I see at least five things in Romans 8, and perhaps you can see them with me as well. First, the Spirit mediates Christ to us. The Spirit mediates Christ to us. You can see that in verse 2. So verse 1 says, There there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then verse 2 explains why. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So the Spirit sets us free in Christ Jesus, in whom we have life. In other words, the Spirit brings Christ to us, and it's through Christ that we have life. The Spirit connects us to Christ. And that's Paul's point here. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and it's through the Spirit that you are in Christ Jesus. Let's see it another, in another place also in the text. If you jump to verse 9, you can see it there. And pay attention here, especially to the names that Paul gives to the Holy Spirit. There's three, three different names that he uses just in these two short verses. Paul says, You, however, in verse 9, are not in the flesh... You're not part of the world. You're not people who don't have the love of God and will ultimately perish. But you are, in fact, in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone, he says, who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, notice the names that he gives to the Holy Spirit just in those two verses. First, in verse 9, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of God. Then, at the end of verse 9, he is called the Spirit of Christ. And then in verse 10, he is simply called Christ. He says, if Christ is in you. And all of those references are clearly talking about the same person, the Holy Spirit. And that's why we say the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, meaning that he, he comes from Christ and He carries Christ with Him wherever He goes. If the Spirit is in you, Christ is in you. The Spirit comes and, and carries Christ, as it were, to you. And, and, and the Spirit is so intimately tied to Christ that you can say the Spirit is Christ. In fact, Paul says that in in another passage. Yes, it's true, he's a distinct member of the Trinity, but not a separate, not a separated member of the Trinity. They they are deeply united together. So here's the point then. Christ accomplished everything that you and I need for our salvation. We saw that also this morning. We have everything that we need for salvation in Christ. His perfect sacrifice, His his righteousness in our place. And what the Holy Spirit does is carry that and bring that to you and to me. We don't then, we don't just believe that Christ died on the cross for the sins of the world. We know personally, confidently, that He did so 
for us. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, I can't make that happen for you. No special formula can make that happen for you. Only the Holy Spirit can take you from knowing about Christ to knowing Christ personally. And the point of saying this is not so that we would all become sort of worried or introspective people wondering whether we really do have the Spirit, wondering whether we really are one of God's elect, or or trying to figure out if we've experienced the Holy Spirit in such a way that that we get to have this kind of, of confidence. No, for that we have simply God's promises, and we know that God means His promises. Whoever turns from his faith, or excuse me, whoever turns from his sins and puts his faith in Christ will be saved. That's a promise from the Father. You don't need to search your heart if you've had some special experience that confirms that. If you turn from your sins, you turn to Christ, you will be saved. There's nothing complicated about that. There's not meant to be anything complicated about that. Repent, turn to Christ, follow him, and you will be saved, period. Jesus himself says, All whom the Father gives to me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That's a promise from Christ. But at the same time, the reality is, as you know and I know, many people don't come to Christ. They hear the gospel preached, and yet it doesn't mean anything to them. They know what Christ has done, and it doesn't mean anything to them. They don't love him. They have no desire to follow him. Well, the difference between these two, pe- these two kinds of people is the Holy Spirit. Only he then can take us from knowing about Christ to knowing Christ personally, receiving him and, and, and living for him. And that, Paul says, that is the reason that you know that your hope won't disappoint you. If we have the Holy Spirit, we also have the love of God sealed and written on our hearts. If, if we have the Holy Spirit, then what Christ did matters to you. We, we treasure what he has to offer us. We, we love what Christ has done for us. That is the fruit of of the Holy Spirit. The love of God, which we have in Christ, begins to fill our hearts. That's why he says the love of God has been poured out into your hearts. And if that is true, that can only be the work of the Holy Spirit. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, no one says Christ is Lord except by the Spirit. And he means nobody says Christ is Lord from their heart and and means it except by the Spirit. And that should be immensely comforting to you and me. The Spirit brings Christ to us such that we find the love of Christ within us. And if you have the love of Christ within you, you have the Holy Spirit also within you. If we see that happening now, even on a small scale, for it certainly is on a small scale, in much weakness, then that is still a sure sign that we belong to Christ and that then our hope is not going to disappoint us. So that's the first thing the Spirit does. He carries Christ or mediates Christ to us. Second, the Spirit puts to death the deeds of the body. You can see that in verse 13. He says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, 
you will live. Now, the deeds of the body, just to mention this as an aside, the deeds of the body refer to the old nature, the people that we were apart from Christ. It's not that there's anything wrong with the body itself. He says in another place, um, offer up your bodies as a living sacrifice. And the point of the point that he's making is this, because we receive Christ by the Spirit, through the Spirit, the same Spirit that makes us love Christ also makes us hate and abhor and reject the sin that Christ had to die for. Those two things go, go hand in hand. You cannot love Christ without at the same time hating the thing for which Christ died. And, of course, we recognize it's true. Nobody hates sin enough. Nobody does that perfectly. We don't love Christ as much as we ought to, nor do we hate sin as much as we ought to. And yet we recognize there's still a world of difference between, between someone who despises Christ and all that he stands for and someone who loves him but in weakness. Just as there's a world of difference between cherishing our sin or fighting it in weakness. And so that's why Paul gives this to us, or to the Romans, as, as a reason for assurance. He says, notice, notice the way he phrases it, he says, If by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. He means that as a promise, of, uh, as a promise that's meant to assure Rest assured, if you find the deeds of the body being put to death within you, then you can rest assured that you will live. You are in Christ. And that, by the way, is a good reason, as we also saw this morning, to engage in that battle all the more fervently. Do you want assurance that Christ lives in you and that you will be with him for eternity? Then put to death the deeds of the body. Fight the fight of the spirit. Put the deeds of the flesh to death. If we're fighting against sin only, only barely or only half-heartedly, then we're robbing ourselves of that assurance and that confidence. If we're not really fighting against sin, then obviously it will leave us wondering whether the Holy Spirit really dwells within us. And so notice then how, again how Paul phrases it. If by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body. It's exactly the same thing that we saw this morning. There's that cooperation there between us and, and the Spirit. That fight begins with the Spirit. It's empowered by the Spirit. But the Bible never talks about us like we're simply robots mindlessly doing whatever the Spirit tells us to do. If by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, then you will live. There's, there's a responsibility there for every Christian. And when we see that battle then happening within us, when we see ourselves fighting against our sin, then that is a reason for assurance that we will certainly live. So that's the, the, the second evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit. You are putting to death the deeds of the body, the deeds of the old sinful human nature. Third, the Holy Spirit assures us that we are God's children such that we cry out to him. And you can see that you can see where I'm getting that from verses 15 and 16. He says, "For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, 
Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So the Holy Spirit assures us that we are God's children such that we cry out to him. Now let me say first what that, what that spirit of adoption does not look like. It does not make a Christian contented with himself or contented with where he or she is already at. It is not self-absorbed. It does not see itself as having already made it. It is not self-confident. In fact, it's the very opposite of self-confidence. Notice what Paul says the spirit of adoption does. It doesn't just just say, Ah, Abba, Father, how good it is. No, the spirit cries, Abba, Father. It's a very strong word that he uses in the Greek. It's the same word that's used when the Lord Jesus cried out to the Father from the cross. The, the image that, that Paul is putting forward here then is, is more like the, the image of a, a little girl that falls off of her bike and scrapes up her knee and gets all bloody and she cries out, Daddy, help me! That's the cry of a Christian. It's not a self-contented, Ah, Abba, Father. It's a cry. My Father, I need you. Help me. There's a total assurance in that cry, to use that picture of the little girl. There's, there's total assurance in that cry that Daddy loves me. Daddy will help me. He will come. But that confidence is still a very needy, a very desperate confidence. There, there's total assurance, and yet it's very needy assurance. It's, it's sad that in, in some circles there can be such an emphasis on assurance that people think that the only truly spiritual people are those who, who never struggle, who never doubt, who never feel like they need God's help. Well, in fact, the, the very opposite is the case. And you can see that from, from what Paul writes here. So the Holy Spirit, thirdly, assures us that we are God's children in such a way that we cry out to Him. Fourth, the Holy Spirit gives us patience and hope in suffering. That's what Paul was already getting at back in chapter 5. And now he comes back to it in verse 18. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to us. And where does that confidence come from? We can see it in verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for, our, for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We know that the world around us is not the world as it was created to be. It's profoundly ruined and damaged by sin. Even though, even now, even though Christ is building his, his church, gathering his church and building his kingdom in this world, death is still the constant reality that every generation must face. And with that death, so much suffering and so much sadness. It's easy to lose perspective in that kind of world. But the Holy Spirit helps us keep our perspective. By the Holy Spirit, we recognize this world, for all its sufferings, is in the pains of childbirth. Something much greater is coming out of this world. And our work, 
Our sacrifice, our love, and our compassion, and the tears that we shed are not in vain. It's all part of that childbirth. It will give birth to something much greater by the work of God. In northern Iraq, where, where ancient Christian, Christian communities have lived ever since the time of Christ, many of them ha- had, in the past years, been ministering for the past decades, indeed, to, the, to their Muslim neighbors and, and helping them, those who were in need, and, and providing for them. Some of them were, were more well-to-do, and they would provide for, for the neighborhood kids in, in their neighborhood, some of them who didn't have coats to take to school, things like that. And they knew they were following the command of Christ to to serve their neighbors. And and when ISIS then swept into those Christian communities, and many of them had to flee their homes and, and run for their lives or otherwise endure life under ISIS, many of them said that that one of the hardest things for them to have to witness was some of those same neighbors whom they had served for years coming out and ripping the crosses off of their churches and taking possession of their homes. It felt like so many years of ministering to them and showing kindness in the name of Christ had all come to nothing. Well, the Holy Spirit helps us keep perspective in this broken, fallen, sinful world. Our work and our efforts are not in vain. Our fight against our own sin, too, which seems sometimes so futile, is not in vain. This world, it's in the pains of childbirth. A much greater creation is coming. And the day is going to come when our bodies, too, will be redeemed. When sin will be finished forever. And when the, when the children of God will be glorified. So the Holy Spirit gives us hope and perseverance in the midst of suffering. The Holy Spirit helps us to not simply run away from suffering, but instead in the midst of suffering to hold on to the assurance that He will use our suffering for good and will redeem us from it. Verse 24, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, then we wait for it with patience. And that waiting and that hoping is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Fifth and last, the Holy Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses. That's in verse 26. He says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now here Paul specifically mentions prayer, but he doesn't only mean the times when we fold our hands and close our eyes, but but that constant prayer that Christians always have in their hearts. Sometimes it, it happens in the Christian life that we don't even know what to pray for. We don't even know what to think anymore. The, the suffering and the discouragement that we can experience in this life can be so overwhelming that it seems our faith itself has finally been washed away and has disappeared. Sometimes the suffering and affliction is so great that we don't even know why we still believe. And yet we do. And that's the, the weakness that Paul is referring to. We don't always have all of the answers, but the Spirit, even in the midst of that, gives us the strength that we need to hold on to Christ, even when we can't explain why we're still holding on anymore. The Spirit helps us hold on confidently to the belief that that God is working all things for good, as Paul says in Romans 8, 
even when we can't possibly imagine how God could use this for good. That's a confidence that doesn't come from the flesh. It's a confidence that comes through the work of God. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And so uh, verses 31 through 39 of chapter 8, are, they're the words that all Christians say in the face of even the worst adversities. Even if we don't have the strength to even utter those words, the Spirit in us defies all the reasons that we might have for giving up and says, if God is for us, then who could possibly still be against us? And then, and then true to form, the Spirit does what He just always does. He points us back again to Christ. That's why some people have said that the Spirit is this shy member of the Trinity because He directs attention away from Himself and back to Christ. And so the Spirit does so, and you can see Him doing so even in Romans 8. Paul says, If God is for us, who can stand against us? He who did not spare His own Son. He looks again to Christ but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It always comes back to Christ. Again, in verse 34, he says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? That's the language of the Spirit. So let's go back to our question then, is this a church that's filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, here's the standard that the Spirit himself gives, having inspired the Apostle Paul to write Romans 8. First, is this a church where Christ is treasured, where his work on the cross is valued above everything else, where we believe not only the facts about what Christ did, but also rejoice because we know that he did those things for us? Second, are the deeds of the flesh being put to death in this church? Or do people in this church still live fleshly, worldly lives? Third, do the members in this church cry out to God as a child cries to her father, knowing that he hears us and yet never content in ourselves? Fourth, do the members of this church persevere in suffering, hope patiently in God, and work steadfastly in pain and affliction? And fifth, along the same lines, is this a church where our faith runs even deeper than our words and persists even when our words fail us and our difficulties seem to overwhelm us? Is this a church where in the face of the worst odds we can still say, yeah, but Christ. That's what Paul does. That is the work of the Spirit. And a church that does those things is certainly a church that's filled with the Holy Spirit. So then, may He fill us all the more so that Christ becomes even more precious to us, so that our fight against sin becomes even more fervent, so that our our sense of childlike dependence on the Father becomes even more urgent, even more confident. Our hope become even more steadfast and our faith become all the deeper. May the Holy Spirit do that among us. Amen.